0: Well hey, tonight we are jumping into Psalm five, week five of our journey through the Psalms. We've only got one hundred and forty five weeks to go, so buckle up for that. Um just kidding. This is our last week, actually, but some of you are getting flashbacks to Revelation for a moment of our nine months there. Hey, uh, we need God's help as we do this, so let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that when it is read, when it is spoken, Lord, your voice is heard. Thank you, Lord, that tonight you will speak to us, and Lord, that as you do so, you will be working within us through your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that tonight we would leave different as to how we walked in, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life is messy. Life is full of adversity. And it looks different for different people, but for everyone there will be certain things that we struggle with and walk through in life. For some, that may look like walking alongside people that we love that are wrestling with illness. For others, maybe that is you yourself are wrestling with illness, whether mental or physical. And I'm aware that as I talk about this tonight, this isn't just something theoretical and far away that, in fact, for lots of us, this is actually really real and some of us are in the thick of it. Life is full of adversities. For others of us, maybe it's not illness, maybe it's relational difficulties, maybe In the household, maybe in the friends with friends or family, or maybe in the workplace, you're facing adversity. Maybe you don't like your boss, maybe you don't like your job, or maybe at the moment you don't have a job and you're looking for one and your struggle is with unemployment. Life is full of adversity. And I want to ask you tonight how do you respond to God in the face of adversity? To put it differently, what do you do? How do you respond to God when bad stuff happens? I want to tell you about some of my friends and the way that they respond to God when bad stuff happens, and I'm just going to use fake names for them for their sake. So the first person I want to tell you about is a friend of mine named Sarah. And Sarah, I don't think she thinks God is necessarily personal, but whoever or whatever God is, he, she, or it, is good, Sarah. And for Sarah, that means that whatever feels right... Whatever feels good, whatever brings her pleasure, somehow, some way, shape, or form, God is in that. And so for Sarah, she really enjoys doing yoga and she really enjoys being out in nature. And that's kind of where she feels connected to the good, connected to God. And so for her, when bad stuff happens, she needs to run and to get connected to the good and do the activities that she enjoys. I have a friend who will call Steve. And for Steve, bad stuff happens to him Because he is bad. Because he's gotten on God's bad side. And so for Steve, uh, when bad stuff is happening to him, he actually needs to get on God's good side somehow. He needs to read his Bible more, he needs to pray more, he needs to come to church more, in order to kind of win God's favor back. I have another friend who we'll call Charlotte, and for her, uh, something really bad happened. And so she kind of deduced from that, in that difficulty, that God himself was bad. And so the way that she responded to God in the face of adversity was she turned her back on him and around the other way. I go to the gym with a guy who we'll call Sam, and Sam is just basically a classic Aussie. He doesn't think about God very much, and so when bad stuff happens, God doesn't really have much to do with it. So the way that he'll deal with it is he will try and surround himself with things that will bring him pleasure and he will try and avoid the things that will bring pain. So he will surround himself with friends and family, and he has a nice car that he'll drive on the weekends, and he'll kind of protect himself from pain by putting savings in the bank and getting insurance and those kind of things. And so when bad stuff happens, he'll run to his friends, and he'll hope that he's got enough to kind of deal with it. And when that doesn't work for Sam, he'll turn to alcohol. Last one, um, and I think I kind of fell into this category when I was in high school, is when bad stuff happened to me, The way that I responded to God was with confusion. You see, I knew God was good, but I saw that bad stuff happened to good people and good stuff happened to bad people. And so when I turned to God in the face of adversity, I didn't really know what to do. I was just kind of confused with it all. How is it that you respond to God when bad stuff happens? How do you respond to God when bad stuff happens? Tonight we're going to see that who you think God is will radically shape the way that you respond to him when bad stuff happens. The psalmist in Psalm 5 is faced with adversity, and we're not, we don't really have many specifics about this or many details, but it seems like the specific adversity the psalmist is faced with is his enemies verbally abusing him. Check out verse 8 with me. The psalmist says, Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they tell lies. It's kind of an indication that the psalmist is being verbally attacked and abused by his enemies. And so, what does the psalmist do in the face of his adversity? Well, Psalm 5 tells us that he runs to God. He cries out to God in lament. And the amazing thing is that just across the space of 12 verses, where the psalmist lands, where he ends up, is in a place of security. Look with me at verse 12. He says, Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor, as with a shield. So, how is it that the psalmist in tonight's passage, in the face of this adversity, can have such a quick turnaround, can have that response to God? Well, we're going to say that it's because of who the psalmist thinks God is. And we're going to see that he there's kind of three observations that he makes about God, three things that he knows about God, and we're going to look at how he responds to God as a result of those things. So first observation that the psalmist makes about God is that God is powerful but personal. Powerful but personal. We see this because as the psalmist cries out to God, he addresses him with certain titles that kind of show he knows God is in control, that shows God is powerful even amidst these situations. In verse 2, he cries out to God as God and King, and in verse 3, he calls him Lord. Evidently, the psalmist knows God is in control. Not only that, but the, the very fact that the psalmist is actually turning to God in the face of his adversity shows us that he thinks God can do something. The psalmist isn't just journaling his thoughts or sending out some positive emotions into the universe. He's crying out to God, knowing that he will do something. He says in verse 1, Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. God is powerful. But not only is God powerful, God is actually also really personal. And often those two characteristics are at odds in people. So that the more powerful that they are, actually the less reachable, the less relatable, the less personal that they are. But it seems that God isn't this way in Psalm 5. As the psalmist cries out to God, he can call him my God and my king. And this powerful God actually hears the psalmist's voice. Verse 3, in the morning you hear my voice. And so because God is powerful, and because God is personal, the psalmist straight away in the morning cries out to God in the midst of his adversity. Verse 1 to 3 says, he asks God to listen to his words, to consider his lament, to hear his cries, and he lays his requests before him. And then he waits. But he waits expectantly. And the youth and youth leaders will know this, but I am the person that is in charge of the washing in our household. And when I do the washing at home and I go to hang it up, I am not waiting expectantly for the washing to dry. In fact, sometimes I'll just leave the washing up there for a week. I've got towels on the washing line that have been there since Tuesday. Because if they're up there, then it rains and they've got to dry again, that'll rain again. And terrible, but I don't really care. They'll be there when I come back. I'm not waiting expectantly for them to dry. But Lauren and I are going on holidays in a couple months, and Lauren and I are waiting expectantly, excitedly, and eagerly for those to come. That is how the psalmist waits for God to answer his prayers, and that is how we can wait for God to answer our prayers. You see, because God is personal and because God is powerful, in the face of adversity, we can run to him and we can cry out to him knowing that he will hear our voice. Second observation that the psalmist makes about God is that God is good. God is good. Now you might be thinking, hang on, as the psalm was read out, I didn't really get the idea of a God that was good. I didn't really get the image of a God that was good. In fact, I got the understanding of a God that seemed like it was the opposite. There's some pretty strong language in the psalm. Verse 5 says that God hates all who do wrong. Verse 6 says that God destroys those who tell lies. It says the bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. Verse 10 says, Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins for they have rebelled against you. This doesn't sound like language that is describing a good and loving God. It's language of a God that would destroy and detest and banish people from his presence. It's pretty strong language. But it seems like in this psalm that God is opposed to certain people. Verse 5 and 6, The arrogant, those who do wrong, those who tell lies, the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. And we don't really like the idea of a God that would hate anyone, that would destroy anyone, that would detest anyone. It's heavy stuff, and it it sits uncomfortably with me, and so I'm sure it sits uncomfortably with you. You see, I think we in our society really like the idea of a God that would treat everyone the same, regardless of who they are or what they've done. A God that would treat everyone the same without distinction. But can you imagine if a judge treated everyone the same without distinction? They would treat everyone the same regardless of what they've done or who they were. I was reading up uh, this week about the tragic case of Jeffrey Epstein, the man that was convicted of running a child sex trafficking ring with at least 36 underage victims. And as I was reading about that case, it made me feel sick to the stomach. You see, the parents of those children, of those victims, would have been crying out to God for justice to be done. And it is right that we, along with those parents, cry out for justice to be done. And can you imagine if that man, before the judge in the court, had the judge just say, you know what? You can just go. Free of charge, you're let off. Don't worry about it. That would be incredibly unjust. That would actually make the judge a bad judge. You see, we don't like it when those that have wronged us just get off free of charge. We don't like it when those that have wronged others get away with it. We actually want to see justice done. And so for God to bring justice to those who have done wrong. Is actually a really good thing. For God to hate evil actually makes him really good. It's a function of his love, it's a function of his goodness. But not only is God good because he's opposed to bad stuff, God is good because he is a God that is loving. Look with me at verse 7. The psalmist says, But I, by your great love, can come. Into your house. The psalmist in this statement recognizes that God is good and that God is loving. He says, It is only by your great love that I can enter your temple, that I can enter your presence. It's not by anything that's within the psalmist that makes him good enough to enter God's presence, but it is because of God and his great love that the psalmist can appeal to for that reality. So how does the psalmist respond to God in his goodness? He does three things. First of all, in verse 7, he bows down towards God's holy temple in reverence. In verse 8, he asks God to lead him in righteousness. And in verse 10, he asks God to declare the wicked guilty. God is good. And so we, along with the psalmist, in the face of adversity, Can worship him. And last observation that the psalmist makes about God is that God is secure. Verse 11 to 12 says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous, you surround them with your favor as with a shield. The psalmist is saying that those that are righteous will be blessed by God. They'll be protected by God. They'll be secure because of God. And for the psalmist, this would have looked like the fulfillment of the promises that God makes to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 28. The kind of promises of physical protection and prosperity and security. Things like the provision of land and the provision of crops and livestock and children. This is what the psalmist would have enjoyed. This is what God promises to those that are righteous. But as we've noticed in this psalm, God will treat the righteous people in a particular way. To the righteous, they will be able to pray to God and worship Him and receive His security and protection. But the wicked will be treated quite a different way. And as I was reading this psalm over the last few weeks, I had to ask myself the question, who am I? Am I the righteous person in this psalm? Can I pray this psalm as the righteous person? Or am I a wicked person, and if I prayed this psalm, I'd just be declaring guilt over myself. Who am I? And as I thought about it, I realized to myself that I am actually guilty of many of the accusations that the psalmist brings against those that are wicked. I am arrogant. I tell lies. I deceive. In fact, even King David, who is the, the, many of the Psalms are attributed to, he's a righteous person in many ways, but in many ways he's also wicked. He committed adultery with another man's wife, and then he ordered the death of that man. It seems like a pretty bad thing to do. And I wonder if you yourself turn the spotlight inwardly and look deep down in your heart, you might actually realize that there's many things in this Psalm that you were guilty of too. And so who are we? Are we the wicked in this psalm, or are we the righteous in this psalm? This passage is actually quoted by a guy named Paul in the book of Romans. So if you want, you can flick there with me. Um, It's after a book named Acts in the New Testament. Paul quotes this psalm. He quotes verse 9 of this psalm in Romans chapter 3 to make a point about a particular group of people. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. Verse 13. Paul says this. He says, Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Paul directly quotes the words of Psalm chapter 5 in order to make a point about a certain group of people that are wicked. And so who are those people that Paul is talking about? Well, cast your eyes with me a little bit uh, further up from Romans chapter 3 to Romans chapter 3 verse 9. I'm going to read from halfway where Paul says this. He says, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one righteous, not even one. And as we read Romans 3, we come to the realization that we ourselves, along with King David and along with Jeffrey Epstein, are actually all caught up in the injustices of this world. That we all fall into the category of the wicked in Psalm 5. That we all deserve the declaration of guilt that is brought upon the wicked. But the good news is, is that Psalm, uh, that Romans 3 doesn't end there. In fact, Paul carries on. Pick up with me in verse 22. Paul says, Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, to use the words of Psalm 5, he has if we put our trust in him, he has spread his protection over us. That he died on the cross in our place for our sins so that we might receive his righteousness and we might not be declared guilty before God. That we might be redeemed. You see, apart from Jesus, we can only pray Psalm 5 as the wicked person. But with Jesus and through Jesus, we can pray Psalm 5 as the righteous one, as the one that is secure, as the one that Jesus has spread his protection over. It is incredible. It is beautiful news. Because of Jesus, we can have security. And not not necessarily the, the physical protection and prosperity that the psalmist enjoyed, but eternal security knowing that we might face adversities and bad stuff in this life, but that we will head somewhere where there will be no more adversity, where nothing bad will touch us, where we will get to spend eternity with God. Because of Jesus, if we put our trust in Him, we are secure. In light of Jesus, we have an even greater revelation of who God is than the psalmist did in Psalm 5. Jesus was powerful. He was God and he was king. And as he was hung up on the cross, he had a crown of thorns put on his head and he had a sign behind him that read, Jesus as Nazareth, king of the Jews. He was powerful and he was in control of it the entire time. But not only that, he was personal. He stepped down from heaven. He took on flesh and stepped foot on earth to walk amidst the adversity and all the messiness of earth. But not only that, Jesus is good. Jesus is good in that he, he put, took the judgment that God was meant to give to us on himself and declared us right. And Jesus is secure if we put our faith in him and our trust in him. We are forgiven. We are secure. You see, my friend Sarah can actually not just think of God as a someone or a something, but can know God as a person, because God revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. My friend Steve kind of got it right in knowing that he was bad, as we all are. But he was wrong in thinking that he himself could make himself right with God by doing the right stuff. He actually needed to run to Jesus, because that's the only way that he could have been made right in God. You see, in the face of adversity, when bad stuff happens to us, we can run to God in prayer, knowing that He is powerful and personal. We can worship Him, knowing that He is good. And we can find security in Him, knowing that through Jesus, He has spread His protection over us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you that only because of him we are righteous, because of nothing else that we have done. Thank you that he has spread his protection over us if we put our faith in him and our trust in him. And so, Lord, we pray that tomorrow, whether we're facing adversity or not, we might be able to come to you in the morning and cry out to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Grant. We've got a bunch of questions that have come in, uh, and someone uh, concerned for my health, I'm fine. Thank you um, for that person. Hey, um, here's a couple of questions, Grant, and uh, yeah. some, some great ones. How are God's qualities of justice, mercy, and love compatible? Mm.
0: Yeah, I think the, the best I can do is that example of God as a, a loving judge. For God to let people off free of charge would actually be really unjust would actually be really unloving but because God loves people um, because God is loving he has to bring about um, justice and rightness in the world for him just to let that go and to keep happening would be unloving and yeah it wouldn't be cool
1: Um, wow they just keep rolling in How do we reconcile the desire for God to punish the wicked, but also for him to be merciful towards us? Mm.
0: Yeah, even asking for God to punish the wicked, I think that that is not uh, a thing that we ever pray easily, or we pray lightly, or we pray in a way that we necessarily want it. Um, Peter actually asks Jesus says can you please not come back for a while because I know that when you come back those that haven't put their trust in you will be punished and so he actually asks Jesus says can you please just wait for a while until more people put their trust in you and so I think um, that's never a a prayer that we pray easily or necessarily uh, with joy or willingness Um, yeah but but how we pray for God to to be loving to us is that the other part of the question
1: um The question was... They just keep coming in. Keep them coming, people. That's good. Um, Here we go. Oh, no, no, that was it. We've already answered that one. Oh, so confusing. How do we reconcile the desire for God to punish the wicked, but also for him to be merciful towards us? Yeah, I think I I I kind of answered that. I I think you did. I think you did good. Cool. Thanks, Jim. Hey, um, Grant... What's the difference between lamenting and mourning? Lamenting and mourning. I early really early about in that. the psalm, it talks about bringing his lament before yeah. God. Yeah.
0: yeah, I don't know if there's. A, like, lament seems to be similar to mourning. He comes to God in a state of crying out to him. Um, I don't know if there's heaps of a difference.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with this as the last one. How do we walk with brothers and sisters who are in the valley of darkness and can't see these truths about God?
0: Yeah, I think we've got to, we've got to do it slowly. We've got to do it carefully. We've got to do it with lots of love. Um, we've got to pray for them. We've got to ask that God would reveal himself to them in the midst of that difficulty. And I think we've got to just continue to, to point them to Jesus. He is the only one that will ever show people how great God is. There's nothing necessary that we can do. We need God to do that work in them, and we need um, Jesus to be revealed to them. And I think the the most powerful way that that is done and has been done in my life has actually just been people being there, actually just been people saying, hey, I know that life's hard at the moment, but I'm here for you, and actually being that practical, tangible example of love that Jesus was.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Jim.